So the, the reading's about is actually John 15, but it's a bit further down John 15. It goes on to, to, to John 16, 4. So it begins, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. The world hates you, keep in mind that it hated, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to this world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So that's the reading. It's a very well-known well chapter 15 of John, the true vine and the branches. And Jesus uses this as an analogy of the vine in the vineyard to remind us of the necessity of our connection to him. I remember some years back, um, Margaret and I went to France. We loved the Taizé music and we thought, well, bit of religious tourism, we'll go there. And we went actually twice. And I clearly remember it was one of the things that both of us through our Christian walk have really remembered was that when one morning we sat 
There was obviously vineyards in the area and it was that sort of environment. And we sat under a tree, the sun was shining. The, you saw all the lights from the, between the leaves on the ground. It was a very, very lovely, quiet, warm, sunny day. And there was a, um, a nun who preached on this chapter 15. And she, she's, it was so gentle and she preached in three languages so she would read it, she would say this, this, this in German, then in French and English. Amazing. <laughs> but it was so lovely and it was really, really struck home to me about this particular chapter. And um, it's a great memory we had. But at any rate, this, um, this section going further down, John 15, he turns to the interdependence of the branches and how believers were to relate to each other in love. And later on, how his followers, followers would relate to the fallen world. <laughs> Talking about love, Margaret, as Jim said at the beginning, we are in the process of moving. We've lived in our house for, I think, nearly 38 years in Hastings, and neither of us can cope with the big steps that we've got. We've two flights of steps up to the house, and the garden is on a hill, and we can't cope with the mowing. <laughs> and we've decided, rather reluctantly, that we've got to downsize and up sticks. And well, we sold the house, and I suddenly came up with this brilliant idea of saying, well, oh, let's get away from everything, and we'll go down to Dorset. And Margaret loves um, uh, Lyme Regis, and I like the area. And I thought, what a good idea, we'll do that. And I suggested it to Margaret, and she said, oh, yes, that'll be good. And then about a day later, she sat and thought about it, and really was nearly doing her pieces, because she thought I, this was what I was going to force her to do, and... You know, she didn't want to go. And we in the meantime, or she in the meantime, had said to various people, oh, we're going to move to Dorset. And some people said, oh, that's a good idea. Um, particularly as we said that we were probably going to rent for a little while, so it didn't really matter if it didn't work out. We'll move to Dorset. And people said, oh, yes, well, nothing to lose. Then Margaret changed, uh, <laughs> we changed our minds. We said, no, perhaps this is not the right idea at, at our advanced ages. Perhaps we can go to a church and make new friends, but not the same sort of friends we've got in Hastings for the years that we've lived there. So we then said, no, we're not going. And it was absolutely astounding the number of people who suddenly said to us, oh, we're pleased you're not going. <laughs> but, but, particularly, more particularly from the church members. I, it, it was quite amazing, really. We suddenly realised that this is where the church love is, Christian love. I even had somebody, I would have last, last person I would have thought, come up and put his arm around me and he said, oh, he said, we'll miss you. I'm so pleased you're not going. So, so we thought, well, this is, this is what Christian love is, what Christian church um, family is all about. And, and it was really, actually for us, a very strengthening thing. So we need to support, really, the, you know, the essence is that we should not be counting on support of the world, but we must be faithful and support one another. In the earlier part of the parable, it talks about our connection with Jesus and his father, the gardener, who prunes us, and that we are the branches that produce much fruit and we, if we remain in him. And he goes on also to issue commands about our relationships,
and connections with other believers. Love for each other is a command. It's not an option. You find in John 15, verse 12, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. In verse 14, you read, You are my friends if you do not do what I command. And verse 17, This is my command, love each other. Now you see there, there's absolutely no element whatsoever for any doubt. This is a command. And that's just what Jesus is telling us that we must do. And apart from my, our normal ideas of what love is, do we really actually know what this love that Jesus is talking about really is? The world's concept of love could be very different and varies with generations. I think it may be helpful if we start by saying what love is not. Love should never be a situation of emotions that are so strong whereby wrong behaviour is counted acceptable. It's not a situation where it stops us from discerning right from wrong. We all love our children, love them deeply, but we still require them to behave. So in love, there's absolutely no room for sin. Biblical love, the type that Jesus is commanding us to do, is to take a deliberate action to meet others' needs. Because if because there's a need, and also expect nothing in return. It is not so much as a feeling, but it's a compassion for others in gentle service. Jesus has commanded that we love each other as I have loved you. Well, love is hard to do in this instance. If we look closely at our lives, do we love others as Christ did? <laughs> Big things we've done in the past are easy to see. Yes, we've done that. But if we cannot see this in our normal daily life every day, we probably are not loving as Jesus has commanded us to do. You know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about food banks. Now, whether they should be there or not, most food banks are Christian-run. And, you know, this is an example of, out, of the outworking of Christian love. I often see street beggars, and I, I, have to my, I have to confess that I often walk past without leaving any money. <laughs> um, I know it is, it's because I, I find I'm sort of offended by the fact that they're doing it, without actually thinking that why it's, a, the, it's occurred and why they're there. So these are the sort of things where you actually do fail Jesus, and it's certainly thing I often do in that sense. Love has a humility in what we do. Doing things that are needed for others, even if it's difficult or inconvenient for us. And it's also sensing their need, knowing what's their, what they want. If this was a need for man, the, that it was this need for man that drove Jesus out of heaven to take on flesh and live among us, and then be cruelly killed, in the most barbaric way, 
for us and our salvation. This is his care. His sensing the need and his obedience to his Father, all done for us. This was Jesus' incredible love. When he was here on earth with us, his love and care was seen by all creation and his healing miracles. He raised the dead, he let the lame walk, the sinful woman, we all know that. But these are all displays of his love and care. This is Jesus' love and this is the standard that our love must be measured against. And if you look at a spirit-filled church, the, the love marker for it is displaying a clear single signal of fondness and caring and bearing others' burdens when we use our gifts to their fullest. We see all the believers as our family and none greater than the other. Jesus then went on to remark about his followers' relationship with the world. In John 15, 18, we see, If the world hates you, you know that he has hated me first. So in world terms, as Jesus' followers, we must plan that we may be unpopular and unloved. In world terms, obviously we gain so much from being a child of God. During my readings, I came across this passage which seems to sum up the world condition as it is now. And I've added some bits myself to it. But I'll read it through to you. I thought it was quite good. Jesus dived into the pool of the world's hatred first. That water was very cold when he dived in. And it is still cold. And that after all he did, it's amazing to us that this is still the case. You know, we as Christians are constantly offended by many of the world's ways. The world wants the message about the Creator to be removed from the classroom. The world wants no judgment whatsoever in the bedroom. The world wants no inspector on the shop floor of life. The world wants nothing to do with a God that watches with horror as his children are brushed aside as inconveniences and not protected from the vileness of pornography and physical abuse. Apart from atheism, conversely, the world doesn't hate what I call a God-channel God. You know the one, a toothless God, one that offers salvation, lots of wealth, comfort and health. You just have to ask for it and does not want anything back but for the occasional visit at Easter or Christmas. At the same time, they want nothing of a God or Holy One to whom they should feel any obligation or reverence. If the world does not make some effort towards God, he is shaped just as, just as the world wants. He has to be a feel-good God, one that always applauds what we do and think, a God that will help you realise the dream within you. A generation that wants a God to give what they desire. Why confuse the issue of heaven when we can live like that already here? The problem is that this isn't real. And if we worship the unreal, we neglect the real. We need, and so does the church, to stand up against this. This is not 
Jesus' way. He tells us that the world hated him first, and because of that, we will be hated. If we live as a branch of the vine, it will not make us popular here. In John 15, 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because the world hates you. John is saying we do not belong here. We all need to be loved, but the right place is with the Father or our faithful brothers and sisters and not the world. We are not any better than anyone else, but we have been chosen by God. Our hearts are not any longer chained to this world. Though God's blessing, through God's blessing, the false desires of this earth are no longer captivating, which is a great thing. It's something we can feel just to enjoy God's presence. We are able, we're freed up to feel God's here, and our eyes are widely opened to his beautiful creation. I often think now that, you know, I do see the creation in a much brighter, more intense colour than I ever used to. It's, it's great. That's what God's world is all about. John 15, we go on to John 15, 26. When the counsellor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth goes out from the Father and he will testify about me. And you must also testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. <laughs> I said this is about the first statement in this chapter that's really comforting. There's a lot of it, a lot of it is a bit distressing. We are told, and we must always remember, that we are not alone. We have unseen help. The Holy Spirit is working alongside us always, even if the world is totally unaware. The movement of God's word is not just in our hands. We carry the message, but the Holy Spirit is there to prop us up, to protect us. We can smile at last. When we go into chapter 16, Jesus issues his final warning. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue, in fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. And sadly, this looks very much like it's a thing that's happening a lot now with, with ISIS and the Christians in this world that are being persecuted and executed for their belief on the, sen on the sense that they think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when the ter their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. Now, these passages all have all really been about our relationships with God and with each other. This is a message for all the church families like the members in this chapel here. A building of a fir of firm relationships in God with help, the help of the Holy Spirit, will inevitably produce growth. The sign that the Holy Spirit is here strongly and abiding with us is when it can be seen that there is an emergence of this common life together, which I'm sure it's here. Openness to one another, a sharing of others' lives, should become a norm rather than an exception. 
The command from Jesus to love one another as he has loved us involves a real commitment to Christ to see, to see Jesus in each other. We need continually to take the initiative to establish and keep precious relationships, put right broken relationships, whether we consider we're at fault or not, and an unlimited willingness to forgive. It requires being truthful and honest with one another. Humble service to each other is what we say. Things we have, our homes and our time. It requires Christian love. Being open and vulnerable, sharing ourselves, our beliefs and our tasks with one another. In our walk with Christ, there will be persecution in this life and God is clearly telling us that. We are to expect it. Why do we get it from the world? Because they never knew Jesus or his father, and we do.